I'd like to speak this evening about the great heart of life. It is, I think, a feature of the human condition that we wish to be loved. This is something universal, common to all of us. We want to connect. We want to be close to. We want to be held, even cradled at times. And this is a, a powerful and deep urge or movement or longing within our being. A remarkably powerful one, in fact. And I, some time ago, heard about a, in some ways, tragic experiment being conducted using um, monkeys in which they found, they took baby monkeys away from their mother and they put them in an enclosure and they put a sort of a soft, warm, furry, mother-like thing at one end of the enclosure and at the other end of the enclosure they put some food and nourishment for the, for the, little, the little monkey. And they put the monkey with the mother thing. And what was tragic and actually quite heart-wrenching to see that they realized was this little being would not leave the warm, soft, furry thing that couldn't provide it any food, but it would not leave it and would actually, if left, actually starve, though there was food not far away. And... Hearing of such thing, one may question whether, even if they, in the end, fed the little monkey, it was fair to do it to it even for a little while. But something in us can perhaps understand what the pull is, what the, the strength of that draw towards something where we feel loved, or some place where we feel held, or cradled, or connected. The importance of this for us is immense, and we perhaps all know this. And yet, perhaps not so immediately obvious is that there is more to it than just the fact that it is nourishing and nurturing for us, critically so, but that it allows us, when we feel loved, connected, held, it allows us to feel safe. It allows our own heart to open. It becomes safe to actually love, to allow our own capacity for love to be expressed. And actually I would suggest that this is the more important of the two. Our own ability to love is actually what is most crucial and important to our own well-being. Being loved is what unlocks that for us, or that is often our experience of how our loving capacity is unlocked. And that's why being loved is so important to us. Learning to actually hold our own heart, ourself, our life, and all of life with love is the process whereby we also learn to hold all beings with love. And the, the need to love is actually crucial to our survival and well-being. It's safer, it's easier, no doubt, if we feel loved. And of course, you know, if you love me, then I'll love you, but if you'll only love me if I love you, then one of us is going to have to start, and there's a serious risk we're not going to get anywhere if neither of us is willing to take that risk. But we can learn to love unconditionally. And this is a profound possibility and invitation through practice. Of course, it's not easy to learn. We live in a world in which our experience is sometimes threatening. It may be violent even. It's certainly unpredictable, uncontrollable. 
And we experience in relationship to this condition, as we've talked about, we experience fear. We can just reflect on how much of our life is spent attempting to avoid what we fear, to move away from, to escape that thing which seems to threaten us. And of course we're not easily able to do so much of the time. So what happens when we can't actually escape from the thing that we fear, that we do not wish to have contact with, is we actually then find a rising in us anger which seeks to push it away, to strike out at, to reject or repel that which we are threatened by. And this condition of anger carries with it a story and often a certainty. There's a remarkable amount of certainty in anger often that says that this is not okay or not right. And there may be some actual wisdom and understanding in that when there is some harming behavior occurring that isn't actually appropriate. But it goes beyond that to also say that this isn't fair. This should not be happening in this way. That goes on to say that people are bad, or that highly charged word, evil. Or oneself is bad, or evil. And we find anger turning towards ourselves and towards others as a result of of the fact that we are exposed to difficult experiences which we cannot escape from in life. And the effect of this, of course, which we perhaps know and feel and sense and even grieve at times, is that this closes our heart. As Rodney was speaking last night, the sense of how our heart closes down. And it's an incredibly challenging experience to find ourselves in this condition. We ask ourselves when we find our heart closed to ourself, closed to others, when contracted, caught and bound in the anger and the fear, how do we open our heart? How do we reconnect with that capacity for loving that is in fact crucial to our well-being? One of the aspects of this process is through understanding. Through simply understanding, seeing clearly this process for ourselves and understanding that it doesn't serve us. That closing down to protect ourselves does not protect us, but simply imprisons us together with whatever it was we sought to escape. It doesn't even imprison ourselves apart from that suffering. It imprisons us with it. To understand deeply and truly that this does not serve. There was a, um, an interesting interview once uh, reported between a, um, a Western reporter and a, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama of Tibet. And the reporter was speaking to him, saying, the interviewer was saying, your Holiness, it's, it's remarkable to us to see that for all that you have gone through and your people, it seems you are not angry with the Tibetans for their occupation. You do not hate them. You do not wish them harm. This we cannot understand. And His Holiness responded. He said, you know, they've occupied my country. They've destroyed the temples and the monasteries of my people. They've persecuted the monks and the nuns. They've killed hundreds and thousands. They've taken everything they can from me. Should I let them take my heart and mind as well? Remarkable wisdom, remarkable understanding to see that in the end, no matter how much violence may be directed or aggression, or cruelty directed towards us, the one thing that no one can take from us without our consent, and often we give that consent unconsciously, 
they cannot take from us actually our heart and our mind, the human spirit. And this is actually the place in which we have to rest our life because all other things can be taken from us. And therefore, the the Dalai Lama, His Holiness, often speaks of compassion for, for the Chinese, of wishing them kindness and well-being. Amazing that wish to cultivate loving kindness and compassion for those who are, it seems, one's oppressors. And yet to understand really, truly and deeply for ourselves that identifying with, buying into and reinforcing the habits and patterns of anger, of hatred and of condemnation do not serve us. They actually create more suffering. And out of compassion for ourselves, equally as for others, we actually wish to release ourselves from that, to cultivate the heart, Perhaps some of you have heard the, uh, the words from a speech by His Holiness in New York in 1994. Ironically prescient, it would seem. He said, Never give up, no matter what is going on. Never give up. Develop the heart. Too much energy in your country is spent developing the mind, intellect, instead of the heart. Develop the heart. Be compassionate, not just to your friends, but to everyone. Be compassionate. Work for peace in your heart and in the world. Work for peace. And I say again, never give up. No matter what is happening, no matter what is going on around you. Never give up. This, more than invitation, this invocation of our possibility to actually in the face of any condition continue to cultivate the heart because we understand what is truly important in life. The Buddha once gave a rather remarkable and challenging teaching with regard to this. He said, Even though you should be being sawn in half by bandits using a two-handled saw, if you should seek to cultivate other than loving kindness for those beings, you would not be a follower of my teachings. Now we might hear such suggestions and think, gosh, you know, maybe this isn't for me. Or it's a long way to go if it is. But to just actually listen to what is said there, if one would seek to cultivate other than loving kindness, if one actually wants to be angry or believes that anger is the response, the Buddha didn't say, don't try and escape. He didn't say, if you can get out of this, you know, do your best. And if he did, I wouldn't be wanting to quote it. But what he said was, seek, do your best to cultivate loving kindness. Because actually that may be the only protection you have in that moment. If those are your last moments, to actually reconnect with your heart is the only protection you can offer yourself to be lost in anger and hatred and fear is to truly be lost. It doesn't mean that we can prevent anger arising or fear, but that our intention is clear, that the sense of where possible, this is our direction. This is the movement of our life. That's what makes the difference. Anger has something of a purpose, something of a place, in that it actually 
creates a sense of power for us when we're paralyzed by fear. When we're paralyzed by fear, we're vulnerable. We're unable to protect ourselves by fleeing or defending ourselves against attack. And anger breaks through the fear to actually enable us to act. And in that way it actually feels powerful and in its pure sense it actually has a place and a function within our mind, body and life. But it becomes locked in. It becomes locked in through the way we identify with it and with a sense of an adversarial situation occurring where we lose contact with the genuine caring that needs to be the place from which we respond if we are to do so skillfully. Referring again to uh, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, he, as you perhaps also know, lives in Dharamasala, northern India, and one of the practices he has there is that whenever... Tibetan people arrive having usually fled from Tibet. He tries to meet them personally as soon as possible after they arrive, whenever he's actually staying in Dharamasala. And um, I recently saw a a dialogue he had, or the translation at least, of of a meeting between an old, an elderly Tibetan monk who'd fled in the middle of winter across the high Himalayan mountains. And through the, um, the Chinese guards, the sentries with um, weapons who would shoot to kill if they saw him, with just threadbare clothes and little food, begging along the way amongst the Tibetan and then the, uh, the Nepali and Indian people on his journey of several weeks, walking in extremely cold and difficult conditions, this would be a, a picnic compared to what he moved through those days and the threat of um, the Chinese army as well. And meeting him and greeting him and just hugging and just welcoming him there with deep care and compassion, his holiness said, he asked the monk, he said, tell me, venerable sir, in your journey, were you at any time in danger? And the monk looked at him with clear eyes through this wrinkled old face. He said, only when in my heart I started to hate the Chinese. Remarkable wisdom to understand that that is the true danger we face. That the danger is that our heart closes down. The danger is the hardening of our being, the loss of our connection with our life and the life all around us. And from that place of connection, we can respond. We can take steps to protect, to care for. But it is not a reaction. It is a response actually born of connection rather than compelled by the disconnection when we identify and become locked into fear, to anger and to hatred. And we see, of course, the tragic results, the escalation, the continuous cycles when the response to fear and violence is more fear and more violence. And yet, of course, we do have to face this reality in our hearts, in our worlds, And perhaps we ask, how can we heal from this condition, from this contraction, from this pattern, this tendency of anger and retaliation? Healing requires that we actually acknowledge the pain that there is in life. To see see that A certain amount of pain happens just because of how life is. We're born. There is sickness, there is death. 
these things we can somehow, if we reflect on them, we say, yes, I guess it has to be this way. We find we can accept them. We might not like them, but it's okay. Maybe we don't have to blame ourselves or anyone else for that. But perhaps what is hardest to actually understand and to stay open in the presence of is where we see that beings seem to act in ways that cause harm, clearly and directly, or less obviously, but act in ways that cause harm to others. We've seen others, beings, people doing this. We have recognized at times that ourselves, we do it also. We act blindly out of our confusion and pain and cause suffering to others, to ourselves. Other people do this, we do this. And we can see in ourselves the fear, the grief and the rage that can arise when we are the subject or the witness to someone or some country or some group. It seems deliberately inflicting harm upon others. We can feel immense and intense shame and regret and a sense of kind of inner trauma or tragedy from the recognition of our own actions that have caused pain, the mistakes we have made, and equally, of course, and more painfully, the intentional actions that we may have undertaken. Perhaps before we came to came into contact with spiritual teachings or values that taught us about the importance of refraining from harm. And yet even when we're doing our best to, and we know the importance of that, still, sometimes our words, sometimes our deeds, and of course, at times, our thoughts strike out at another and cause them harm in some way. And how do we hold this reality? A reality in which we and those we love and care for get hurt, and we and those we love and care for cause harm. Opening to the suffering, the pain in this reality, we could perhaps reflect or inquire within ourselves, how does it happen that we become the condition for suffering in another, that we become part of a a process in which pain is inflicted. If we look carefully, and this is something that I've had cause to do and come back to on regular occasions, I think what we'll see, I'm actually deeply confident that what we'll see, what you'll see, is that when we cause harm to others, whether intentionally or unconsciously, we are acting in reaction to our own pain, somehow seeking to escape or relieve ourselves from it, relieving ourselves from the pain of our suffering or the wanting for that which we don't have. We are driven into actions and reactions that perpetuate harm and suffering. In the blindness of not understanding what is most true in life, we strike out against and at whatever is around us that seems to be the cause of our pain, that seems to be the cause of our suffering, or that seems to somehow stand in the way of us getting what we want or what we need. This is what we do. And this is not different for others. That even the most horrific acts perpetrated in this world, if you listen to the story of the perpetrator, and this is not in any way to condone or justify such actions, but what you will hear is at some level, in some way, that being was trying to actually get what was needed for themselves or the group they were identified with, their people, their country, their family, their race, their religion. 
that in some way they believed they were taking care by getting rid of a danger or a threat. I find in reflecting on this, I once, um, in speaking with someone, I once came upon an interesting metaphor that kind of illustrates it quite usefully for myself and uh, hopefully for yourselves, since I'd like to share it with you. And so it's kind of a scenario, and I'd invite you to imagine it as I describe it. And just perhaps imagine you're going for a walk in the woods just, just outside here. And as you're walking, you see a small puppy. And uh, having some enjoyment of small creatures and little beings, um, just coming up to it, reaching out to pat it. And it bites your hand. Just imagine your response in that moment. What's the thought that rises in the mind? You little. What's the reaction? The thought and the words. And maybe the hand, the other hand rises to strike it. I'll teach you. You don't bite me, bad dog. And just as you are in the middle of that reaction, as you've just condemned it, judged it, and are about to teach it a good lesson, what you see is that actually its foot is caught in one of those spring-loaded traps with jaws. And you realize in that moment that this little being is in pain. It's desperately wanting to get out of the pain and terror and fear that it's experiencing. It doesn't know how. It can't by itself. And tragically, it attacks the being that could actually help it in this case. And we understand what's happening here. We say, it's not that this puppy wants to hurt me. I think the puppy wants to hurt me. It's not the puppy wants to hurt me. The puppy wants to escape from its pain. It's so clear. In that moment, we feel compassion for the puppy. We may have some other thoughts about whoever put the trap there. But that's another part of our practice. So there's the scenario. Now imagine some time has gone past since this last walk and you're again walking in the woods. This time it's fall and the leaves are deep. You see a puppy and you like puppies. So you reach out to stroke it, it bites you. And in the moment it bites you, you look at the puppy and you see that it's buried shoulder deep in the leaves. You can't see its feet or its legs. What would it be to know in that moment that the puppy's foot was in a trap. Because one understands that it is not the nature of puppies to wish to cause harm. And yet, in fear and in reaction to that pain, they would bite, as would we, perhaps, in a similar situation. But actually, it's a call for help. And yet we can't see their foot. We can't see what's actually got got them in the trap. We don't know what that is. But we understand because we've examined ourselves. And we're not that different than a puppy. We're not that different than anybody else. We've examined ourselves and our own heart. And we see, in fact, that this is how it works. In pain, we react causing pain. And we can actually begin to forgive others and ourselves for the harm we have caused, for the harm they have caused, without in that condoning the harming action or refraining from responding to it in such way as to end or minimize the harm being caused. So we don't encourage the puppy to bite our hand. We perhaps even might wish to train it or to support it and asking for help in another way. But something's fundamentally shifted when we understand that the concept of evil or badness really doesn't have any place in the core of our heart or in the truth of life. But blindness... Blindness, 
unseeing, unconscious reactivity. Self-protection twisted through the distorted lens of ignorance and fear. This causes suffering. And this becomes the object of what we wish to address or resolve in ourselves, in others and in the world. Rather than feeling we need to punish ourselves or others for the mistakes we have made or they, the harm caused, we wish to heal, to transform. We cannot create the conditions for our life or anyone else's life that would be without pain. Body, heart and mind will be touched by this as we have spoken about, as we have seen. But we can learn to meet that condition, that truth, that experience, that there is pain, that there is suffering. We can learn to meet that with love. My grandmother on my mother's side is a native of Calcutta, India, and uh, was involved in the... uh, the resistance movement in the uh, 40s to the uh, British imperial rule of India. She was uh, one of the, the maidens sitting quietly and peacefully together with Mahatma Gandhi in front of the British army and uh, choosing to respond with non-violence to the aggression and the uh, attempt to suppress the, uh, the Indian national consciousness movement and its uh, seeking for independence from the oppressive British government. And she's quite a remarkable woman. She's uh, in her 80s now and um, spent much of her life doing peace marches in Europe. And uh, when I first visited her, I was traveling and I was in India and she, I'd never met her um, before until I was, uh, I was in my early 20s and uh, came to India and knocked on her door. It's kind of remarkable wondering who this being would be. And it was a delightful meeting. But it struck me quite soon as I walked in the door, she had a little, a little plaque there. And um, it kind of summed up a lot of her spirit, actually. It said, Hail, guest, we ask not what thou art. If friend, we greet thee, hand and heart. If stranger, such no longer be. If foe, our love will conquer thee. And it's kind of a little bit almost too sweet, and you know, the old language, but you know, that was her time. But it's something I can see her living. And it was really, really amazing that sense of trust and confidence that I actually love in the face of a foe, of oppression or threat, or of fear, of grief, is actually the most powerful force. The remarkable power to heal our hearts and our lives that comes through loving and caring, despite what we may have done. And we may look at our lives and see some of the things we've done and we may feel pretty bad. We may think, I don't know if I can really open my heart, just even to me, because some of the things I've done But maybe we can. Maybe we can. In the life of Mahatma Gandhi, many remarkable stories, and one specific one that occurred in Calcutta in the time of the, uh, just immediately after, or during and after the the eventual uh, crumbling of the uh, British capacity to rule India and their withdrawal, the partition, there were, you're perhaps aware intense and tragic riots and communal violence between the, the Hindu and the Muslim communities and uh, a lot of uh, death and uh, misery. And as this was subsiding and India had been partitioned into the Hindu state now known as India and the, uh, the Muslim states now known as Pakistan and initially East Pakistan, now Bangladesh, 
This man came to see Mahatma Gandhi, Mahatma, the great heart, he was known. That's what it means, the great heart. And he said, Mahatma, he said, you have to help me, I can't go on, my life is unbearable. One day, some, some weeks ago, my little boy was going to school. He was, he was a Hindu, he was a Hindu man. He said, my little boy was going to school and some Muslim men caught him and they killed him knowing he was a Hindu. Just for that, my little boy was killed. I was overwrought with grief. I couldn't bear it. With my brothers, I went out and we found a Muslim boy and we killed him. I can't live with myself. I can't go on any longer. What can I do? Can you help me? Torn between the immense grief at his loss and the, the immense tragic pain and guilt of having inflicted that pain and on another little being and on that being's family. When, when just What could one do? How could one go on? Gandhi looked at him. He said, I know what you must do. And the man, a lot of faith, a lot of trust, he said, tell me, please. He said, you must go out into a poor Muslim village, like your own village. You must look for an orphan boy. Find an orphan Muslim boy whose parents have been killed because many adults as well as children died at this time, thousands. And he said, you must take him into your home. You must raise him as your own child. No different at all than was he your own flesh and blood. But just one more thing, he said, as the man started to smile and to think, I can do this. He said, you must raise him as your own flesh and blood but also you must raise him as a Muslim. The story didn't recount what happened. But one sees in that the wisdom of actually recognizing and moving beyond the tragedy, the pain and the guilt of the past to actually say the tragedy of the loss, the guilt for one's harming is born out of love. That's why we feel the loss. That's why we feel the guilt. And to actually come back into that place and move from it, move forward from it, is the way forward and the only way forward. There is no other option. There is no other way to live our lives. The spirit of loving kindness invites and asks us to cherish all beings. And the Buddha spoke in the Metta Sutta as a mother would protect with her life her only child. So too with a boundless heart one could cherish all beings. A sense of a boundless heart to cherish all beings gives us remarkable capacity when we connect with it. It's more obvious and clear in a situation of the mother with her child And uh, without meaning to make this a family history, my other grandmother is a. Uh, she lives in Israel. She's Romanian Jewish and uh, lived through the Holocaust in Europe. When uh, my my father was born and just a couple of years old when the war began. And at one point in the story of their survival, my grandmother escaped from the. Uh, I think it was a train that they were being taken to a, a labor or concentration camp in. She escaped with my father, just two or three years old at the time, maybe four. She escaped by jumping into a pit latrine and standing there, holding my father above her head for several hours until she was sure that the... Um, the people, in fact, it was Romanian, not uh, German, but the uh, who who were um, shipping them had left. And no one, of course, looked into the toilet to see if anyone might be in there. But just to think, I mean, what it takes to hold a small child above your head for several hours in a latrine up to your neck in the uh, human effluent. One sees the capacity of a human being is quite remarkable. 
We've had some difficult stuff on the retreat, probably most of us. Without wanting to diminish any of it, it's also useful to have a little perspective. And also there's something uplifting in seeing what the human heart is capable of without trying to measure ourselves against it. Because that we can't know what we might do in situations unless we're in them. She's a remarkable woman, still alive in her early 90s. I see her when I teach in Israel. Remarkable kindness and courage and generosity. This is the capacity of the human heart. One of my favorite stories is the story of Ryo Khan. He's a wonderful Zen monk of Japan and a, a great poet, a great lover of children and of beings. And he was once observed on a summer's day picking the lice out of his robe and placing them on a rock to sun themselves. How remarkable. And even more remarkable, at the end of the day, picking them up and putting them back in his robe. Such generosity to share his very body with them. How is this possible? People sacrifice their lives and their interests at times for others. How remarkable. People share courageously in so many ways. If we actually look into the world, it's not actually full of violence and fear and anger. It's equally full of kindness and care. But it just doesn't get into the newspapers so much. To actually open the heart of love, opening to life, opening to our connection to life, I don't know if many of you saw the film Gladiator um, about this guy who seemed to be remarkably good at using a sword to um, sort of both defend himself and kill anyone who might be trying to attack him. That was basically what the film seemed to be about. I really enjoyed it, um, despite that fact, and it wasn't just because it was a Kiwi, um, a New Zealander who was the, uh, the lead actor. Though the Australians are trying to claim him because he lives there, but he's actually a Kiwi. Um, Russell Crowe. And what actually touched me most was not the remarkable skill and um, integrity and courage of the character, but that rather sweet and simple way that he reached down and touched the earth before he had to fight every time. Just You feel him touch and pick up a bit of earth and rub it between his fingers when facing what might be a moment where his life would be taken. And just something about what is that to be touching the earth, to be connected with life that deeply. Because our practice is essentially and fundamentally to unlearn the habit of disconnection. Being caught in craving, aversion and disinterest. Our reactions to the experience when we're not conscious. Are based in a sense of being separate from it. And reinforce that sense of being separate from it. But from the place of the heart, from the place of love. This is not What is true? Love does not see separation. Love sees whatever it sees as being not other than itself. That is the character, that is the nature, the defining element of love. It sees what it sees as not other. It does not see division but connection. All beings, all things, all forms and expressions, all manifestations of life, all animations and equally what we might call the inanimate are actually born of life, are of the same essential nature, manifest and reflect the same essential truth and are part in an indivisible, interwoven Tapestry of wholeness that sometimes we sense and feel the vibration of in our heart. And of such an experience, deep and profound, I'd like to share the words of Black Elk, a, uh, a holy man of the Ogala Sioux, a native of this country. 
Black Elk, from Black Elk Speaks. Speaking of this experience, he said, And then I was standing on the highest mountain of them all, and round about me was the whole hoop of the world. And while I stood there, I saw more than I can tell, and I understood more than I saw. For I was seeing in a sacred manner the shapes of all things in the spirit, and the shape of all shapes as they must live together like one being. And I saw that the sacred hoop of my people was one of many hoops that made one circle, wide as daylight and as starlight. And in the centre grew one mighty flowering tree to shelter all the children of one mother and one father. And I saw that it was holy. One circle, one being, one life. That is holy, that is whole. The heart sees all beings, all things as they are, undivided. A wholeness and a holiness that is alive, that is in conscious communion with itself, constantly, unstoppably. It is the love of the awakening heart, the depth of the human spirit that vibrates through it, that bridges the apparent gap, the appearance of separation that creates the illusion, the fundamental edge of suffering that we feel cut by again and again, that actually heals the disconnection from ourself in our depth, which is actually the reconnection with all of life in its vastness and its breadth. That healing comes through the heart that does not see anything that is other. That sees all things and yet nothing that is apart. And in the dissolution of that separation of that gap, the natural response is of care and of compassion. The natural movement of life is to actually nourish to nurture, to seek to heal and to uplift life all around, so-called within, so-called without, knowing within and without as truly not different than each other. Just as the hand rubs the foot when it hurts, though it looks different than the foot, there is nothing that separates the hand from the foot. The body is one. And the hand simply rubs the foot in time of need. As Shantideva, the great Indian mystic and teacher, said, just as we see our limbs as being of this body, Could we not see all beings as simply the limbs of embodied life? When acting in service of others, no amazement arises in me. Just as when feeding myself, I expect nothing in return. And yet, of course, naturally, the hand rubs the foot. We give nourishment to the being. We care for life. Because it is what we are. And in this, we come to understand the nature of life 
we come to understand the nature of life that is unbound. And love, unbounded. So may your practice and the goodness that dwells in the core of your being, may it lead you on to discover the life that is unbound and the love that is unbounded. This talk was given by Anni Postel Nikat Insight Meditation Society on April 11, 2003. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.